الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله في السراء والحمد لله في الضراء والحمد لله حين البأس والحمد لله بما جرت به المقادير والحمد لله على كل حال وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله الذي قدر فهدى إنا كل شيء خلقناه بقدر وما أمرنا إلا واحدة كلمح بالبصر إذا قضى أمرا فإنما يقول له كن فيكون وأشهد أن سيدنا وهادينا ونبينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله قل لا أسألكم عليه أجرا إلا المودة في القربى وإن يكاد الذين كفروا ليزلقونك بأبصارهم لما سمعوا الذكر ويقولون إنه لمجنون وما هو إلا ذكر للعالمين من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يتوكل على الله فإن الله على كل شيء قدير أما بعد Brothers and sisters أيها المؤمنون We are in the month of Al-Muharram We are in the first 10 days of the month of Al-Muharram and this coming week before our next Jumu'ah some Muslims will be remembering or commemorating or observing Ashura which is the 10th day of Al-Muharram when Al-Imam Al-Husayn registered a position in human history that serves as one of the most significant lessons to be learned. And for those of you who have been following these khutbas in the past few weeks, those khutbas were deconstructing the dynastic decisions that were made in that part of our early history. The Umawi dynasty put into motion certain concepts and certain priorities of its own and the rest of the Muslims have been burdened with that up until this very day. The rest of the Muslims though all of them have been burdened with it in different ways. So I'm going to have this first khutbah into two parts. 
The first part is going to be the continuation of the deconstructing of the Ummawi fallacy. And the second one is going to be some probably thoughts about the 10th of Al-Muharram that you probably don't hear from any of the speakers who give themselves the opportunity to speak on this occasion. As you may have concluded from the previous few khutbas, the Umawi monarchy wanted to divert the attention of the Muslims away from the essence and the core of Islam and Iman. Obviously, this is what rulers do. When they obtain power in an illegitimate way, and they know that there's going to be opposition to what they have done, then they try to, as much as they can, derail the opposition. So they had Muslims, some of them scholars, emphasize the hadith. And not any hadith peculiar hadiths that you hear now all the time, almost everywhere. Hadiths that have to do with what you may call elementary knowledge. Al-wudu, al-salah, al-siyam, al-istinja', al-mujama'ah, etc. None of these hadiths that perforated, uh, proliferated from that time until today, none of them concentrate on justice or equality or combating poverty or social responsibility or the natural resources and how Muslims should distribute wealth among themselves. None of this, all of this went away 1400 years ago. And for anyone who is willing to connect with today's reality, you can see it all around you. I don't have to remind you of what's being said from the minbar. This day, Al-Jumu'ah, is a day of Allah's taqwa. Ittaqullah. Now, how did this Umawi intrusion, how did it take us all off course? They had us, and they still have many of us, if not the majority of us, through regimes and authorities and establishments and systems they have us focus on the types of issues that I was enumerating in the past khutbas. Add to that the following, and I'm just going to mention a few of them so that there will be a continuation to deconstructing the Umawi system that was responsible for the tragedy of Karbala. But not doing it on the basis that this was a personal thing between Imam al-Husayn and the ruler Yazid, like many of those who speak on this occasion presented. Okay, so now, there's in Islamic fiqh, there's something called sujood as-sahu. You're praying, and then you forgot something in the prayer. Or you didn't remember to do something you're supposed to do while you're praying. Such as, let's say, you didn't say, Allahu liman hamida. That's part of the prayer. Everyone, after we, st- after we adjust from ruku'ah, we say, Allahu liman hamida. Okay, 
Let's say you didn't, you forgot to say that, or you didn't say it. Your salat is not invalid, but it is something that the fuqaha tell us we are required at the end of the salat if we realize later on that we forgot that. If you didn't realize it, you didn't realize it. But if you realized it, or if there's a ma'moom, another person following you in the salah, they alerted you to that by saying subhanallah, or something else, depending on your school of thought, and then you realize, oh my God, I forgot to say something. So you are required to perform what's called sajdat as-sahu. Now, here we come. This this is where they want. This is where the Umawi type of indoctrination. This is where they want you to go. And so we look at what did the fuqaha say? Abu Hanifa says, if there's a sahu in your salah after you say. After you end the salah by saying Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, then you perform your sajdat al sahu. So, sajdat al sahu is after the taslim. As Shafi'i says, sajdat al sahu comes directly before the taslim. And Malik says, if your sajda, if your sahu resulted in you not saying something, then you perform your sajda as sahu after the taslim. But if your sahu resulted in you adding something to the salah, your sajda comes before the taslim. So in his madhab, Sajjad sahu is either before or after, depending on the, the nature of your sahu. This is the area where we're supposed to have scholars. And we're supposed to have informed opinions. We're not here, we're not belittling and we're not trying to take away from what each Muslim would consider their legitimate way of doing things. You can do it however way you think in your heart and your mind is agreeable with your heart and your mind so we're not dealing with that issue what we are dealing with is these are the issues that have become the preoccupation of the muslims in their masajid in their halaqat in their study circles in their conferences all over the place that's an example. I'll give you a few more examples. In the Hajj, when we go to Hajj, we are required by the majority, I believe, of fuqaha to shave our heads after the Nahar after we offer the sacrificial animal what if someone shaved his head before that in today's world according to the umawi burden that we carry oh that's not right you shouldn't have done that in the time of allah's prophet a person came up there's an incident a person came up to the Prophet and said, I shaved my head before I offered my sacrifice. The Prophet in one narrative says, La haraj. In another narrative says, Ifal wala haraj, which means it's all right. <laughs> in the in today's language, not a big deal. But it has become in the years, in the decades, and centuries after, that's become a big deal. People want to become something like honorary scholars by condemning a person, a Muslim, in his good heart and with his good intentions is trying to obey 
and is trying to be devoted to Allah Jalla wa'ala. Ramya al-Jamarat in al-Hajj is supposed to be after the night that you spend in the last days of al-Hajj. What if someone went and he pelted a shaitan before that, before staying at al-Muzdalifa that night? In today's fuqaha, you know, you can't do that. Or you have to, some of them may go to the extent that you have to pay a kafara because you did it the wrong way. If this was done during the time of the Prophet, same thing. And the Prophet, exactly the same answer. La haraj. Doesn't matter whether you did it before or after. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal in the Umawi type of understanding of things. There was a time in those early years of Islam when during the Hajj the animals were slaughtered and during the administrations, at least this is the information I came across, the administration of Al-Khalifa Umar and Al-Imam Ali. People were told not to hold on to the meat of those sacrificial animals for more than three days. They had to be distributed within three days. When you when you consider this, when you think about this, you realize when they did that, Muslims were living in harsh economic conditions. Because in today's in today's world, our Umawi weight, our Umawi distraction from the core of Islam. Who cares? Does anyone know what happens to the meat in the Hajj? How much meat is there? Are Muslims dying? We ask ourselves, are Muslims dying of hunger? Yes. Do Muslims need meat and nutrition? Yes. So is anyone thinking about all of this meat? Imagine two million people go to Hajj. That's two million animals that were sacrificed there. Each animal, let's say, has, I don't know, 50 pounds maybe of meat on it. Multiply two million by 50. 20 million times five, 100 million pounds or kilograms of meat. Does anyone bring up the issue of, wait a minute, we have to know that we have extra meat here and then we have Muslims who need this meat. That question is never presented. Why? Because we are chained with this Umawi construction which we are deconstructing of Islam and there are other examples of this I'm just gonna I have a few but I was made sensitive of the time issue coming here um, the Isra and the Mi'raj <coughs> if you review the books that we have, our Islamic history books, our Islamic scholarly books, to see when Al-Isra and Al-Mi'raj took place. When did it happen? Most of what we have tells us it happened one year before the Hijrah. But what did the others say? I'll tell you. Others said it happened eight months before the Hijrah. 
Yet others said it happened six months before the Hijrah. Yet others said it was one year and two months before the Hijrah. And yet others said it was one year and five months before the Hijrah. Now this is fertile ground for the Umawi stuff to try to have Muslims feel bad towards each other because someone says it was a year. The other one said it was six months, which means half a year. And then the other said it was almost a year and a half. And now we have to have an argument and someone claiming that they know more than the other. Can we just put these issues to rest and then begin to focus on our major and our essential responsibilities as committed Muslims. Now I'll go to the second part of this khutbah. I just gave you some examples that we have to get rid of. It's been all of these centuries and we no one, I mean, there are individuals out there. The Muslims, alhamdulillah, they're still among them. Some people who are vital and some people who are dynamic. The second part of this khutbah, put these away, it has to do with Al Imam Al Hussein alayhi salam. Almost everything you hear on this occasion has to be improved. I'm using cushioned language. We, some of us, because there's many other Muslims who this day and this occasion passes by and they are absent-minded. They don't know what the heck is going on. Let me tell you, and this was relayed by a person that I have confidence that he's saying the truth. He, he, this person comes from a Sunni heritage. He encountered a Palestinian, another Muslim from a Palestinian background. And he spoke to him, the this person who happens to be from Algeria was speaking to the Palestinian about Fatima al-Zahra. Salamullahi alayha. And he was speaking to him and speaking to him and speaking to him. So this Palestinian sort of, it got on his nerves a little. He's saying, oh, you think I don't know anything about uh, Fatima al-Zahra? So he asked, so what do you know about Fatima Zahra? He said, and this brothers and sisters, listen to this. This is how ignorant many Muslims are. And the other Muslims who have this information, it's just like it reminds me of a professor who is trying to teach a novice a theory or a formula. And the novice cannot absorb everything at one time it needs time so the professor has an attitude towards the student and this is what happens I don't want to use these sectarian words I try to avoid them as much as possible but this is what happened with many individuals who have knowledge about Ashura and then they want of course initially they want other people to know what happened at ashura but the attitude they have blocks them from their purpose so i go back to the algerian and the palestinian both of them from sunni families so when the algerian said so what do you know about Fatima, the daughter of Allah. No, he didn't say that. He said, so what do you know about Fatima? 
He said, oh, Fatima was the prophet's wife. He wasn't lying. The only thing he was doing was he was expressing his ignorance. This is how profound and how deep this ignorance is. And this you're not going to be able to surmount and defeat this ignorance with an attitude. And what we have on the day of Ashura is an attitude. You have to get rid of that attitude. So we can become normal human beings who can communicate for God's sake. So we can communicate as normal human beings. There's not communication as normal human beings on this day. As much as that tragedy is painful, as much as that tragedy is emotional, as much as that tragedy is unique. It doesn't mean I have to present myself like I'm the reference on all of this and you don't know anything and therefore you're a lesser Muslim or some of these individuals and some of them I'm sorry to say some of them are scholars when you listen to their words they will not use the word mu'mineen to refer to Sunni Muslims I'm sorry I'm using these words in the khutbah but I have to sometimes you come up to me and say well we didn't understand what you're, what, what, what you're implying Al-Imam Al-Husayn was not targeted by Yazid alone. Al-Imam Al-Husayn was targeted by the combination of powers in his time. And this I, and I wish and I pray that in the future we will have some speakers and some conscientious scholars and learned individuals who can speak about this in the context that I'm going to tell you right now. The Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and his. He defeated the, I'm going to call them the Zionists. The word Zionism became a word in vogue in the past hundred or so years. But there were their equivalents. Today's Zionists had their counterparts in the Arabian Peninsula at that time. The Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam defeated the Zionists in Al Madina. Banu Quraida, Banu Nadir, Banu Qainuqa. They were all defeated. They were defeated because they knocked heads with Allah's Prophet. They offended him. They confronted him. They conspired against him. And as a result of their machinations, Allah's Prophet, along with the committed Muslims, defeated these parallel Zionists in the Arabian Peninsula, and they left. They left Al-Madinah. They had to leave Al-Madinah. So where did they go? They went to Khaybar, the north part of the Arabian Peninsula, Taymah, which is also in that general area, a few other oases in the northwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula, and some of them went further to Palestine, to Al-Quds, and to some other Yahudi communities in Palestine. When the campaign for the liberation of Khaybar took place, the Zionists were defeated once again. They, first they were defeated in Al-Madinah, 
And then they were defeated in Khaybar. And the leader, so to speak, that brought, brought down the fortress of Khaybar was Al-Imam Ali. And you all know this in Islamic history. The Prophet of Allah says, I'm going to give the banner tomorrow to a person who loves Allah and Allah loves him. And every individual who heard the Prophet, every Sahabi around him said, I, I hope that's going to be me. So the following day, Allah gives the, the banner to Imam Ali and Imam Ali makes the, the military movement against them and then finally they are defeated. Where did they go? They went and joined their likes in what is called the Levant, Bilad al-Sham. At that time, it was ruled by the Byzantines. What happened was, here's where our reading and understanding of Islamic history is disconnected. When we say Muawiyah and Yazid were enemies of Imam Ali and Imam Al-Husayn, no one tells you whether they had any relationship with the Byzantines. And just like in today's world, how do the Zionists work? They have their lobbies, they have their connections, they have the money, they have the wherewithal, most of the times from behind the scenes. So these people just didn't vanish. They were defeated in Al-Madina. They were defeated in Khaybar. And then, during the time of Umar radiyallahu an, they were again defeated in Al-Quds. Now, don't it, with people or a community like that, when it's been defeated like that, what do they do? Having the power that they have. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَتُفْسِدُنَّ فِي الْأَرْضِ مَرَّتَيْنِ You're going, he's speaking to Bani Israel. You are going to cause worldwide corruption twice. Many of these scholars who looked at this ayah in Surah Al-Isra, they said the first time was when they were exiled from or when they were defeated by either the king in Persia or the king in Babylonia or the Byzantine king. That's the first time they tell us. But the ayat of the Quran tell us otherwise. It wasn't any king who defeated Bani Israel. It was ibadan lana devout subjects belonging to us kings don't belong to Allah whether they are Persian or Byzantine so it was ibadan lana and they knew this and we don't know it because of our umawi indoctrination no one's you know presenting this to you like that but this is in fact what is happening our school books, our classes, if someone's studying Islamic history or Islamic subjects, they're studying the, the Umawi uh, presentation of things. Still, up until now. So these Yahud, they had it out. So what did they do? Now, who's, when Imam al-Husayn left Mecca or left uh, the Arabian Peninsula and went to Iraq, who was ruling in Damascus? Yazid was ruling. Now, Yazid doesn't have any relationship with the colonial power that was there before he became the ruler. France used to colonize Algeria. And then France was forced to leave Algeria. After it left Algeria, it didn't have any influence inside of Algeria. 
The same thing you can say about the British. When they colonized a certain country and they left, they didn't have any influence inside of that country. And so when the Muslims got rid of the Byzantines in the Levant, in Bilad al-Sham, the Byzantines didn't have any influence in that country. And if they had influence, and there's no doubt, if we had Islamic scholarly work on this subject, we would know that they definitely had influence. Muawiyah had Sarjun, a person, a consultant. The closest consultant to him was a person called Sarjun, who happened to be a Byzantine. And they, and these Zionists who lost in the previous generation too, they didn't have their influence within the Byzantine Empire, just like they have their influence in the American Empire today. So that army of 10 or 20 or 30 or more thousand people who was massacring Imam al Hussein and his followers in Karbala, was it an army of Yazid like the preachers tell you? Was it an army of Yazid? Or was the army of Yazid the foot soldiers for the Zionists and the Byzantines who had a score against the Prophet? Al-Imam Ali, Al-Imam Al-Hussein. This is the dimension and this is the dynamic of Karbala and Ashura. Now why, why don't our respected scholars who feel like they are peacocks on the throne on the day of the 10th of Al-Muharram, why do they narrow down this issue to oh, this is was a this was a fight or this was a war between al-imam al-hussein and yazid we're not mature yet you can't even you on that side of the issue who are conscious of the 10th of al-muharram even you are under influence the influence of the umawis look at today's world saudi arabia Saudi Arabia is acting on its own. Let's say it goes to war. If Saudi Arabia goes to war with the Islamic Republic in Iran, it's doing it by itself. Saudi Arabia is the incarnation. The king there in, in Riyadh is the incarnation of the king in Damascus 1400 or so years ago. He's going to do it on his own? Or there are powers behind him guaranteeing him financing him uh, even though they're taking away the money but they throw it back at them with weapons to kill muslims this thing is playing out in front of your own eyes and you can't make the connection between what's happening today and what happened 1400 years ago we need an intelligent we need an enlightened and we need an attitude-free character to speak to us about what happened on the 10th of Al-Muharram. Because all of those dynamics are at work today. All of them. If you had a Yazid then, you have a Yazid today. If you had the Byzantines then, you have them today. If you had the Zionists then, you have them today. And don't tell me they don't work together. If you say something like that, you haven't read your Islamic history, or if you read it, you read the Umawi version of it, or you don't understand today's world. It's either you're ignorant of the past, or you're ignorant of the present. Allahumma ja'alna min alladheena yastami'oona al-qawl, fayattabi'oona ahsanah, وسلام الله ورحمته وبركاته على رسول الله وعلى أصحاب رسول الله وعلى أهل بيت رسول الله وعلى الإمام علي والإمام الحسن والإمام الحسين والأئمة الأطهار أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم أدعوه سبحانه وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم
الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear brothers and sisters committed Muslims Now, if we were, if this is a day of taqwa اتقوا الله We have rulers, kings and presidents They hear, they, they may even say it They may even say اتقوا الله But what do they do? What do they say? What do their actions spell out? اتقوا Israel Or اتقوا America. There's no taqwa of Allah Allah to them is no power Who's Allah? I mean, they wouldn't put it like that. But when you trace what they are doing, that's exactly what they mean. So what are they doing? How many how many khatibs they have in their kingdom? Every Friday, ittaqullah. In one of or a couple of madhabs, saying ittaqullah in the khutbah is a pillar of the khutbah. So let's say, uh, belonging to the, those madhabs, in their kingdom, they have several thousand masajid, at least, telling them every Friday, ittaqullah. And no one is observing ittaqullah. So what do they do when no one, when Allah is not a power in their minds, in their societies? in their religious establishment from top to bottom what do they do okay here's what they've done in the past week one of their luminary scholars his last name is al-arifi he's banned now he used to give the khutbah in the haram in mecca now he's banned you can't give any khutbah you can't communicate via the social media, the World Wide Web, etc. In Jeddah, this past week, I'm giving you, I give you what's happened in this past week, when there is an absence of Allah's taqwa throughout that dark kingdom. This went viral on the internet there's an egyptian egyptian man who's having breakfast with a saudi lady who's wearing her niqab she's covering even her face and what this man does is he serves her a maybe it was a piece of bread whatever type of food it was he puts it in her mouth this was caught on by someone's camera and it was reported to the authorities and then these authorities dragged this person to jail and only now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's happened now that's a big crime you see this is the Ummawi Islam of course this is not very accurate and becoming public behavior by a committed Muslim. But, you know, who knows? This, I, we don't even know who he is. He could be a Christian. He could, they, all this, they tell us he's an Egyptian. Even if he was a Muslim, what he did is trivial compared to what the, those rulers are doing. But not if you're an Umawi guy, if you think the way the Umawis are thinking, oh, this is something big here. This is very serious. It's not very serious to bomb in Yemen every day and kill innocent. The, the official organizations in the world, they stopped counting the casualties in Yemen. You don't see them reporting on it anymore. Why? Oh, that's nothing there. When it comes to what they are doing, you have to obey your ruler. Whatever he does, he can kill, he can maim, he can steal, he can plunder, he can do anything he wants. And then the previous ruler in Malaysia, Abdul Razak, 
or Razak, I've heard it both ways. He said he's going to court now because he was stealing big time. In court or to the media, he said, the ruler in Arabia gave me a gift of $100 million. Oh yeah? If you weren't the ruler, would he give you that gift? But this is the corruption. These things are happening. This is now coming out. Much more serious issues, violation of justice and equality and the brotherhood and the compassion among the Muslims. All of that is being violated. All of it. There's a, uh, an airline in Saudi Arabia. I think it's called Fly Nas. It's one of these discount airlines. For the first time now, they are hiring waitresses, female flight attendants, for the first time. Now this is supposed to be a breakthrough. Here's where we go from the Umawi Islam. Now we're coming to the Byzantium Islam, to the American Islam. And uh, 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 after this ad was put out there, thousands of women are applying for the job. Thousands of them. They want to be flight attendants. And then, I usually don't you know, say anything about books or anything like that, but this book that came out called Fear by Bob Woodward, I think it deserves someone to take a close look at it when he speaks about the relationship of the rulers in Washington with the rulers in Saudi Arabia. And how Kushner was the one that's the son-in-law of the president of the United States, who is probably a Zionist in his core, no doubt. He was the one who arranged this family coup in Saudi Arabia. He said, Muhammad bin Nayef has to go, Muhammad bin Salman has to come. And he arranged all this. The first trip, he brought Muhammad bin Salman here last year, 2017, in March. And then a couple of months after that, Trump, on his first visit overseas, goes to Saudi Arabia, and from there goes to Israel. And now they're tying together Israel and Saudi Arabia. And we know for what purposes. You're not supposed to look at, the, just like you're not supposed to look at Yazid's relationship with the Byzantines and with the Zionists of that time, you're not supposed to look at these facts that are flashing in front of the world, but you're supposed to cl close your eyes. And then we have these governments that want the Saudi money. Governments. Spain said that it's not going to sell Saudi Arabia 400 bombs because Saudi Arabia is violating human rights in Yemen. And then money went, this was this past week, but then money went to work and the Spanish government said, we rescind our decision. We're, no, we're, gonna, we're gonna sell you these bombs. See what happened between Saudi Arabia and Sweden three years ago. Same thing. There was a friction, po political and diplomatic friction between the kingdom and the Scandinavian uh, government. And then all of that went into silence. The same thing between Saudi Arabia and Germany just a few years ago. The same thing between Saudi Arabia and Canada a month or so ago. And on and on it goes. Money speaks at the end of the day. And then on another note, we have the, uh, the theorist of the Salafis in Jordan. His name is Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi. He passed his judgment on Erdogan. He says, Erdogan is a kafir. Here we go. Here we are again. We're caught in that takfiri thing that, that can be traced all the way back to those initial years in Islam. 
اللهم أرنا الحق حقا وارزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه ولا تجعله ملتبسا علينا واجعلنا للمتقين إماما ربنا إننا سمعنا مناديا ينادي للإيمان أن آمنوا بربكم فآمنا ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد ربنا صل على محمد وآل محمد وبارك على محمد وآل محمد كما صليت وباركت على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم أقم الصلاة الصلاة حي على الفلاح قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر